0: All right, we are in 1 John 2. 1 John 2, as we move through this book, I see a few faces that have been gone for a while that are back, and I'm always glad to see that. Always glad to see that. And always glad to see the returning faces as well. It's always a blessing to see you here. 1 John 2, we'll be looking at verses actually 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. At least that's our text that we have this morning, but we're not going to cover all of it obviously this morning. And if you're using one of those blue church Bibles, you can just flip it open to page 1022. And that'll bring you uh, to this section here. Okay, give me just a second here. Okay. So, let me ask you something. I'm titled this message, by the way, Righteousness, the Present and Ultimate Reality for the Children of God. You can see the outline inside of your bulletin if you open it up. And as you can also see, the first point is the only one that's in bold because that's the only point we're going to cover this morning. We'll come back to point two and three next week. These phrases, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Or, uh, chip off the old block. Or, like father like son. What do those phrases mean? Have you heard those before? Probably. Do you know what they mean? I was hoping you knew because I couldn't go any further unless I had the answer. I googled it. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so we know, we know those phrases mean or they imply that children are like their parents, similar to their parents. Like father, like son means the son is similar to his father. Sometimes it's a good reference sometimes not so much. You know, have you heard that? Oh boy, like father, like son. And they're talking about, you know, the son's a tragic mess, just like his dad. Or it can be a good, it can be a good example too. Like father, like son, he's an upright, loyal, righteous kind of individual. I, um, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that this morning, this like father, like son idea. I found this cute joke. I always like a little cute joke early in the morning to get, get me started. It's called um, like father, like son. It's in Reader's Digest. That way I know it's clean and we can use it in front of a church audience. It's a doctor joke. It comes from a doctor. I was on duty as an emergency room technician. This is from a doctor. When a father brought in his son who had poked a tire from one of his toy trucks up into his nose. The man was embarrassed, but I assured him this was something kids often do. I quickly removed the tire and they were on their way. A few minutes later, the father was back in the ER asking to talk to me in private. Mystified, I led him into the examining room. So the father speaks. While we were on our way home, I was looking at that little tire and wondering, how on earth did my son get this thing stuck up his nose? And, dot, 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 it took just a few seconds to get the tire out of dad's nose. That was delayed, guys, but yeah, that's... Uh, like father, like son. That's the idea, you know? So obviously they're both curious people and they like to see how small objects fit into other small objects. So, and that's what happened. But that's the idea, that there's a relatability. There's, you can look at a, a child and you'll see a manifestation of the parent in that child. That's what all of those phrases mean. Now think with me for a moment. Think with me for a moment now in light of all that. In the Bible, Christians... Are called children of God. They're called children of God. John says, as we will see in a moment, that children of God is not just a title. Okay? It's not just a title that's given to Christians, it's a reality. It is who they are. Children of God. I've said this before, I'll say it again. We're not born children of God, beloved. John 1 makes it very clear. To those who receive Him, Jesus Christ, to those who believe in Him, to them He gave the power, the right to become. That's what John says in John 1. To become children of God. We are not born children of God. We must become children of God. And that is who we are if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, if He is the Lord and Savior of our lives. Now, if children are regularly known to resemble their human parents as evidenced by some of our modern-day sayings that I just talked about, should we expect that not to be the case when the Bible says that Christians are children of God? And if it is natural to expect Christians to have, as children of God, to have a resemblance to their heavenly Father. What does that imply for us and what does that resemblance look like? And if someone claims to be a child of God, but they don't have any resemblance to God the Father, what does that imply? What does that imply? Just want you to think about that. 1 John chapter 2 verse 28. Let your eyes look at the word of God as you follow along and I read from it. Verse 28, reading down to actually I'm going to be reading down to chapter 3 verse 10. And the reason I'm doing that is because I'm doing it for context. And because I think this whole section here in 1 John, from 2.28 to 3.10, is one unit of thought. One unit of thought. It's all going together. It's the same idea, same topic, same subject that John is dealing with. So we're not going to look at all these passages today, but I want to read it nevertheless. Beginning in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone, verse 4, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He, that is Jesus Christ, appeared, came to earth, to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one. What does it say? No one born of God, no child of God, makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in Him. And he cannot, or she cannot, keep on sinning because he or she has been born of God. Verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're going to look at those That later half there, section verses 4 through 10, we're going to look at that in the next couple of weeks, okay, two weeks from now, we're going to, to this morning, we're going to start by looking at chapter 2, verse 28, down to chapter 3, verse 3, and we're going to come back to it again next week to finish it up, okay? So inside of your bulletin is the outline, or what we're looking at this morning is we're going to consider three realities, only one this morning, but we're going to consider three realities related to righteousness and the children of God. So that we might understand our reason, our reason and motivation for living righteously. Okay? This is important. Why? What is the foundation for why Christians live differently? And what is their motivation for living differently? Now we're going to focus more on the foundation for why we live differently, and we'll look a little bit more at the motivation next week. Don't miss them. Don't miss them. And if you just have to not be here for some crazy reason then make sure you listen to the message online or through via the table. So the three realities we'll look at over the next two weeks is it is the children of God, these are simple, it is the children of God who practice righteousness. Two, it is the children of God who are promised ultimate righteousness, Okay, ultimate righteousness, complete fulfillment, perfect righteousness. And number three, it is the children of God who purify themselves in view in light of, because of the knowledge of their ultimate righteousness, that is to come. So first uh, point two, three we'll look at next week. This week, we're starting with one. It is the children of God who practice who practiced righteousness. Now in the preceding section, if you weren't here last week, which is First John chapter two verses 18 through 27, that's just the, the unit of text right before the one we just read this morning. John there was assuring his Christian readers, because that's who he's writing to, Christians, that they know and believe the truth. Maybe you were here last week, you'll remember this. Regarding Christ and regarding Christianity, that they know it. They understand it. They have the Spirit of Truth actually abiding and living in them. Therefore, there was no reason for them to abandon the apostolic teaching, the teaching that the apostles brought them, that they originally received. There's no reason for them to abandon that and go after the Antichrist or the false teachers or come under their teaching who were ultimately there to deceive them. That's what John said from the text we looked at last week. Now, the false teachers claimed to possess the truth. Okay. Now, remember, these are people who were saying they were Christian, and yet they preached a different Christ. And as we will see this morning... They also had a little bit of a different lifestyle. So they denied His true nature. We looked at that in detail last week. They denied the true nature of Jesus Christ that was taught by the apostles of Jesus. They contradicted what the apostles were saying about Jesus Christ. And as we looked at that text, at the very end of verse 27, John says simply this, this little phrase, Abide in Him. Abide in Him. Which is to say to His Christian readers, listen to Me. Remain or continue in Jesus Christ. Don't leave or surrender the true Jesus of the apostolic faith for the false Jesus of those antichrists. Don't do it. Continue in the truth. You know the truth. You have the Spirit of truth living inside of you. Continue in the truth. Continue in Jesus Christ. Don't give up your Christianity for a corrupted and perverted view of Christianity, which is what the antichrists that's how John labeled them, were doing. They were perverting Christianity. They were bringing in, remember we talked about it, Gnosticism, these Gnostic type of ideas right into and mixing them with Christianity and creating a real mess. Now let me pause here and insert something to remind you of what I said when we open the book of John when i introduce first john and i have referred to this issue several times including last week it is generally believed that these false teachers and this is important so listen it is generally believed that these false teachers or antichrists were influenced to some degree by an early form of a philosophy that was later or later became known as gnosticism We talked about this last week, Gnosticism. I've talked about it several times. It's this erroneous, worldly human philosophy that included this idea that matter or the material world, matter, stuff, or the material world, the human body, matter, or flesh, was imperfect or inherently evil. Imperfect or inherently evil. Something that they were ultimately, the Gnostics, were trying to escape from. Trying to, to gain freedom from this material world because it was inherently evil or, and even their bodies were considered to be that way too. However, the spirit or the spirit world was good or perfect. Okay, so they created this division between the material and spiritual. One is evil, one is pure. This false idea is likely, as we talked about last week, the reason that the Antichrist couldn't or didn't or refused to accept the truth about Jesus Christ. That is, he was God, Spirit, pure, perfect, and also flesh, man, material, together, one person, the God-man. They rejected that. They came up with some different ideas. One was that Jesus was never even material. He was just a spirit being who appeared to be material. That was one view. The other view was Jesus was a man and the Christ Spirit did not reside inside of him but came and visited him at his baptism and then left again right before his crucifixion. Because they could not bring the two together because how could you have evil material and good going together? And and so this is one of the reasons we believe that they got this false view of Jesus Christ. But it also impacted how they viewed ethics or morals, human ethics or morals. And that is what we refer to in the Christian life as sanctification. So let me explain that just quickly. Sanctification for the Christian is the idea that the Christian, after he gets saved, after she gets saved, God begins to change them as they cooperate with the Spirit that lives inside of them as they are transformed by the reading and studying and meditating upon the very Word of God. And that transformation, that process, begins to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. What? That they look like Jesus Christ? No. Not physically, but morally, ethically. They begin to walk and manifest righteousness. They begin to say more frequently, no to sin and yes to God. They, like Jesus, live to honor their Father. Okay? Perfectly? No. Not in this way. But there is a progression. Incremental? Slowly? Yes. Sometimes fast, sometimes slower. But there's a progression towards Christ-likeness. That's called sanctification. Now, let me explain how this perverted Gnostic view would get in the way of what I just told you about what happens to the Christian in their life. Because of this philosophy, it didn't really matter what you did in the flesh or in your physical body in regard to your moral behavior since your flesh or your physical body was considered evil anyway and inferior and separate to your spirit. So your actions and your behavior in their thinking had no real impact on the spirit, your spirit, which was pure and good. So Let me say this a few more, a few more ways. So if the spirit is good, as they say, and the flesh is evil, as they believed, to practice behavior in the Bible or sorry, to practice behavior in the Bible that the Bible calls, I'm going to get this right eventually, to practice behavior that the Bible calls immorality or sin, to practice that, to do that. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say that? Do I have to give you examples? I don't think so. You know what I'm talking about. To practice immorality, not just sexual immorality, to practice greed, to practice lust, to practice all of those things, anger, hatred, to practice those things was of little concern to them. In other words, you could sin. You could neglect the commandments of Christ. And it didn't really matter in regard to your spirituality. They were above that. They were the Gnostics. That, that whole thing was beyond them. That's just the material realm. They don't concern themselves with ethical and moral behavior in the body. That's all going to be done away with anyway. We're above that. We're the Spirit trying to get back in touch with some spirit being. And that's why you see as we move through the book of John, remember when we were in 1 John 2, 3 through 4? By this, John says, we know. By this, what is the this? We'll get there. By this, we know that we know Him, that we have a relationship with Him. What is this? If we keep His commandments. By this, if we keep His commandments, we know that we know Him, have a relationship. He who says He knows Him, he goes on in 1 John 2, and does not keep His commandments, has no no care for His commandments, doesn't care less, doesn't even regard them, he's a liar. He says He knows him and doesn't keep His commandments, he's a liar. That's what John is saying. It's impossible for the child of God to live like that. Okay? So we'll talk more about this. So theoretically, beloved, you could, in this thinking, you could live a life of habitual sin, By the way, who here sins? There's a few of you, okay? A few of you don't. You are the holy ones for sure. I raised my hand, by the way, in that question. I'm not talking about just the reality of sin even in the Christian's life because it's there. We're talking about a habitual, unbroken pattern of sin where that is the characteristic of your life. That is the characteristic of your life. Rebellion to God. You could care less about following after God. You don't really care. And it doesn't mean you're a murderer. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. So we're not saying, oh yeah, you're talking about the murderers. No, I'm not. I'm talking about those who refuse to place themselves under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, come under God. They have no desire to follow Him. They give not even one thought to that, but they live for themselves. And even in that, in living for themselves, they are sinning sinning against God. For God has created you to live for Him. And yet in rebellion, we choose to live for ourselves, do things our way. Life of sin. So the idea is you could live that type of life and still claim to be a true child of God. Now, according to that false philosophy. Now it troubles me, this is what troubles me, is that some people in our own day, call themselves Christians and they, are, they actually are guilty of that exact type of thinking. Hey, I, yeah, I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. But you live in habitual sin. You don't follow the Lord. Yeah, sir. I know I'm saved because you know, I walked the aisle one time or there was this altar call or I went to a harvest festival or whatever and they said if I come down, I'll be saved so I know I'm saved. That's what you're basing it on. The Bible says some things about this. So somewhere along the line, people and churches have departed from biblical Christianity, beloved. People and churches have departed from biblical Christianity. They just, hey, I'm saved. How do you know? Like I said, I just know. How? How do you objectively know you're saved? And John is hammering away at that. And the reason he's hammering away at that is not to not to scare his Christian brothers and sisters and to make them doubt their salvation. He's hammering away at that because he's got these false teachers, these antichrists, who are making all kinds of claims about the fact that they're Christian. And he's saying, no, they're not. They can't be. Those who say they know Him and then refuse to keep His commandments, they're liars and the truth is not in them. Those who continue to abide in sin and yet say they're children of God, they're liars, they're children of the devil. Those who deny Jesus is the Christ don't have the true Christ. Don't follow after them. Don't follow after them. So it appears that as John has done before, as he's done throughout the book, he's really making it clear for us, beloved, what does it mean and what doesn't it mean to be a Christian to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a child of God. Now back to this phrase, abide in Him, um, abide in Him that we just talked about that appeared at the end of verse verse 27, chapter 2. I believe this phrase, and just bear with me here. This is to help you kind of get the idea of what's going on behind the text. I believe this phrase, which you see repeated in verse 28. Okay, So at the end of verse 27, he says, abide in Him, verse 28. We pick it up there. He says, And now little children abide in him. I believe it's a transition from what he was just talking about in the section in 18 through 27 where he's discussing the false teachers and the Antichrist to a new topic that is different but somewhat related to what he was just talking about in regard to the false teachers. We'll get to that in a second. And it runs all the way down to chapter 3, verse 10. And and this is not a big deal, but you'll... Bibles, when you look at Bibles, I want you to understand something. Bible chapters and Bible verse numbers are not part of the original text. Those have been added so that we can refer to the text. But as people do that, they have to make decisions about maybe where a paragraph begins and where it ends, so they start chapter 3 here, chapter 2 here. But they don't always do that as well as they can. And I don't always agree. I I don't always agree. They do it differently depending on the Bible you have. So, for instance... In this ESV Bible, verse 28, there's a title heading, and it's called Children of God, and it's at the top of verse 28. And so it it believes that that's where this idea starts, beginning with verse 28. You might look at another Bible, like a New American Standard Bible, and they actually will not have that title there. They'll let 28 and 29 kind of be connected to the other piece of text, and they kind of see a new subject started in chapter 3, verse 1. And they see verse 29 as a transition between the two. So don't let that take you away and have you thinking about that and not listening anymore. I'm just giving you that, that these are the kind of things I have to work through when I bring you the text. I've got to figure out where exactly, what does this text go with? Is he changed his thought? Is he talking about the same thing? Those are the kind of things Bible interpreters have to work through. So I'm telling you that I believe When he says abide in him in verse 27, some commentators will see abide in him in verse 28 and go, wait a minute, I think that's connected with that. I don't see it that way. I think like like he'll do again when he gets down to chapter 3, verse 10, we read it today, where he says, and love your brother. Then he jumps into verse 11 and he goes, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He uses it as a springboard. So he'll have a phrase and then he'll jump to another idea, but he'll use that phrase to connect and springboard into a new idea. And I think that's what's happening in verse 28. Abiding him, verse 27, then he springs board into something else in verse 28, using that phrase to connect the two together. So I think what's happening here, and and by the way, when he gets down to verses 28 through 310, it's now a topic or a discussion about, righteousness and sin. That's what this whole section is that I just read you this morning. That's why I think it goes together. I'm going to try to show you that in a minute and how it, what it means to you. But it's a, it's a discussion about righteousness and sin and how those things relate to or don't relate to the children of God. Okay? And so, I think what he's saying in 2.28 is, listen, I've told you to abide in Him. I've said that already now I want to further elaborate on what it looks like. What does it look like to actually abide in Jesus Christ? What are the signs that you are abiding in him? And as I said, we'll see that in 228 through 310. And and here's the signs that we just read about. They will be people who abide in Jesus Christ will not be characterized by sin. Their lives will not be characterized by sin, but by righteousness. And in fact, those who practice sinning are actually, John says, children of the devil. That's what he says. Not children of God. Now I believe, based in part on John's letter, that the false teachers, and here's how this is all connected, the false teachers he had been combating, the ones he was just talking about, in 1 John 2, and the verses before, down to 27, the ones he was saying are the Antichrist, I believe because of that philosophy they had that they were suggesting something contrary to what John lays out here in chapter 2, verse 28, through the end of chapter 3, verse 10. In other words, you can live how you want as a Christian, you can do what you want in the flesh, and it doesn't matter. Your moral actions are insignificant. And so John's got to deal with that now. Now listen, I told you to abide in Him. Let me make that clear, what that means, what that looks like. Because these false teachers are making the same claim. They say they know Christ. They say they are children of God. They say they abide in Him. Now let me tell you how you can know that for sure. And how you know what they're saying is a flat out lie. So, This section of text really flows out of the section we just looked at about the false teachers or anarchists. Now let's begin to look at the text a little closer. Following verse 28 that we read, you have verse 29, right? Verse 29 follows verse 28. Is that how it works in your Bibles? Good, just checking. Which includes the subject of what's brought up in verse 29? Righteousness, which we're going to look at in a second. But let me read the two verses together for you again. Chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. And now, little children, abide in him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been what? Born of Him. Now, it it may look like verse 28 doesn't necessarily go with verse 29 because there's kind of a break in thought here. It looks like it may appear. And, And again, some good Bible commentators don't put the two necessarily together. They'll put verse 28 with verse 27 and then they'll take verse 29 and they don't really know what to do with that exactly. They're not sure. They think it's a transition between the two subjects or they'll put it with chapter 3. But I think from verse 28 all the way down chapter 3, verse 10, it's one unit of thought. And I think when he's writing verse 28, he's thinking about verse 29 because he already knows what he's going to write as we look down through the text. They go together. He's going somewhere with all this and he's going to carefully... This is how John is hard to follow sometimes because he, he takes pieces and he's connecting them into a big picture, but he doesn't do it necessarily like a logical sequence one after the other. So you have to take the big picture and take all of his pieces and then put it back together. So let me show you what I see in this text. You see the issue of abiding in him. So remember, he says, and now little children abide in him. And then in verse 29, he brings up this issue of righteousness. Of righteousness. Well, as you read through the text and you keep reading, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, you get to verse 6. Look at it with me. What does he say? No one who abides in him. There it is again. There's that phrase. So this, this is what's on his mind when he says, and now little children abide in him. Now listen, this is what I mean. No one who abides in Him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So he goes on. So I I can see how verse 28 then connects with the entire section here as he'll come back to this issue again of what abiding in Him means. And he brings up the topic of righteousness and sin as we move throughout the text. But how does verse 28 exactly relate to verse 29? Because I believe it does. Well, let's look at this again. Go back to the text. Look at verse 28. It says, And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming." Now listen, this is straightforward. This is straightforward. Those who remain or abide in Jesus Christ, as defined by the apostles, right? The true Jesus Christ, not the false one. Those who remain in Him, those who stick with Him, they will have nothing to fear when He comes again to this earth. But rather, they will have a certain confidence to appear before Him at His coming. The One who is coming, beloved, the One who is coming, He is the Righteous One. He is the Righteous One. And that is exactly how John refers to Him in chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus Christ, the Righteous. The Righteous. Just, Just keep with me here. Keep the flow of thought. When He is coming and He is coming, those who abide in Him will have no reason to be afraid or to shrink away in shame but they will have a confidence before the righteous one. Okay. Now John says by abiding, like I said, we'll have confidence. That word confidence, it carries this idea of boldness, boldness, assurance, courage, even freedom. And literally the word kind of means freedom to speak, freedom to speak your mind. There's a certain boldness that the person who abides in Christ will have when the righteous one returns one writer adds this it is a confidence that stems that comes out of a personal obedient abiding relationship with the coming one okay you follow me so far it is a confidence that flows out of a abiding living personal obedient relationship with the righteous one. What does obedience mean? You know what that means, right? That means I'm obeying Christ. I'm obeying His commands. I'm following after Him. I'm doing as He did. I'm obeying the Father. I'm living for God. Referring to this phrase, by the way, abide in Him, that we see both in verse 27 and 28, One commentator writes this, whereas we see in verse 27 the emphasis of abiding in Him was about acknowledging Him as the incarnate Son of God. In other words, remain and stick with the true Christ as I've just explained Him. Okay? But when we get to verse 28, the thought is rather of a personal relationship with Christ which has moral consequences. Wholesome, moral consequences consequences, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him. So that when the righteous one appears, as a child of God abiding in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and by abiding I mean a personal, obedient relationship, one that produces righteousness, in the life of the child of God, he will have no reason to fear or to shrink away, but will have boldness and courage when the righteous one comes again and appears. One writer adds this. Stay with me. If the judge is righteous, and he is, those who will be confident when he comes will be the righteous. That's what I think John is saying. When the righteous one comes, the judge that is righteous, those who will be confident when he comes will be the righteous. Remember, remember what John said. Those who abide in Christ, John tells us they do not keep on sinning, chapter 3, verse 6, but rather they practice righteousness, which means they practice, let's just define this word righteousness for a second, They practice correct, moral behavior acceptable to God. Not the moral behavior that our culture establishes. That's, most of the time, unacceptable to God. I'm talking about the moral behavior that God has established in His Word. They practice it. Do they do it perfectly? Huh? Do Christians do this perfectly? Please. Just, please, I would love to know who you are. There is no one like this. Christ did it perfectly. Christians do not do it perfectly. But it is the pattern of their life. And it will become more so as they continue to abide in Jesus Christ. Okay? So, you know, you come out of a life that's all messed up. It's going to take a while. Okay? So that pattern begins to really... Be seen in your life, but it will be seen, and incrementally, incrementally, little by little, there will be signs of life, signs of the life of Christ, signs of righteousness in your life that you can look at and you can bet on. Now listen. Well, let me add this: correct moral behavior acceptable with God. I would also add it is another person says it's right and just it's to practice what is right and just in character and conduct according to the Word of God. And that is the Bible. So, again, it's a pattern of life. It's a pattern of life that grows and becomes more dominant in your life as you continue to abide in Jesus Christ. I, I would have a real hard time with someone who's been abiding in Jesus Christ for 20 years and yet they're worse off now than they were 20 years ago in regard to their moral character. That would be very confusing to me, and it should be confusing to them, but we have so gotten away from the truth of Christianity that that person will boldly and confidently say, I'm a child of God. Because when I was seven years old, I walked forward in some altar call. But, okay. But I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see those kind of connections in the Bible. What I see is what John is saying, that he who is a child of God cannot keep sinning, and indeed... He practices righteousness. Now listen, because we're, we're looking at verse 28 and 29 right now, and we're talking about this appearance of Jesus and this confidence and righteousness. How does this all go together? This is important because he says something in verse 29 we can't miss. It's the key to rightly understanding why. Listen to me, because if you leave here after what I just said and you shut off your mind right now, you could walk away with something that's not true because I haven't finished yet. Why is the manifestation of righteousness in our lives put us in a position of confidence when Jesus returns? Why? And this is it right here. Let's look back at the text. Verse John 2.29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now you can understand the he in the first part of verse 29 if you know that he is righteous. That's Jesus Christ. That's how I understand this. He is the Jesus Christ. He's the one who's coming that he just talked about in verse 28. He is the one that he referred to as Jesus Christ the righteous in chapter 2, verse 1. The one we are to abide in. And you could understand the phrase this way if you know that he is righteous. If, as I assume, you know that he is righteous. He's not questioning their knowledge. He's saying if, as I know... I assume you know he is righteous. Okay, so understand all that. You know that he's righteous, right? You know, and he's the one that's coming. Based on all that, you might expect John. He, you might expect him to have finished the verse by saying this. And if you are to be confident when he appears, you must also act rightly. We right that might be logical. So you want to be confident when He appears? You've got to abide in Him so that you'll be confident when He appears. And if you want to be confident when He appears, He is the Righteous One. You need to act righteously. But He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Listen, He also doesn't say that by doing what is right, this is important, He doesn't say by doing what is right, you will be acceptable before the Righteous One. And therefore, you'll have confidence when He comes. He doesn't say that. And that's important because that's what some people believe. They believe that they are earning or meriting their right standing with God, and therefore when He comes, the righteous one, they can stand in confidence, and they'll pull out all their righteousness out of their pockets, and it's all lined up, and they'll go, look at all that! Of course you're coming for me! Not for them, they're losers, but look at me! That's not what it says, yet some people believe that nonsense. Rather, He says this. Look back at the text. 1 John 2.29, the last part of it. You may be sure, you may know, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Has been born of Him. The Him in born of Him... I believe now is clearly a reference to God the Father. Okay? We don't ever read in the Bible about someone being born of Jesus Christ. We do read in the Bible of people being born of God. And it's interesting because when you get to verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, which is the text that follows verse 29, he immediately begins to talk about children of God and the Father. So I believe he's just made a shift and he says, listen, you can be sure of something. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's the new birth that makes us children of God. So according to John, here we go, according to John, doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord, according to the Word of God, practicing righteousness is the sign of being born again or spiritual birth. It is the proof, okay? It is the proof, if you will, of being a child of God. John comes back to that very issue. That's why I believe this is all one section. And he addresses now the other side of the argument in chapter 3, verse 9, talking not about righteousness, but the opposite of righteousness, that is sin, and how sin cannot relate to the child of God. Look at the text with me. Just let your eyes drop down. 1 John 3, 9. So we're talking about being born of Him. Here it is again. No one born of God. Him makes a practice of sinning. No exceptions. For God's seed abides in Him and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. We're going to look at that in detail in a few weeks, but I think it's pretty straightforward, don't you? It seems pretty straightforward. I don't know how we get that God is so messed up. There's not a mystery here. It's not a secret text. It just is what it is. So commenting on verse 29, one writer says this, Listen, doing what is right is the sign of spiritual birth doing what is right, what is righteous, having a moral life according to the Word of God, following after Him, desiring to obey Him. Hence, doing what is right gives assurance that we shall have confidence before Him at His coming. This is the connection now between verse 28 and 29. See, listen, it is the reality of a righteous life, a life characterized by living for God and according to His Word, which is the real and undeniable evidence of being a child of God. An evidence that ensures you, beloved, that you actually are a child of God, and therefore you will have no reason to shrink away in shame when Jesus comes again, but rather you will be filled with a divine confidence and joy because you have manifested righteousness in your life not to earn a position with God, but as a demonstration that you are His child. The point I'm drawing out from this text then is really simple. It is the children of God who practice righteousness. Do you understand what I'm saying? So... For some people, their assurance is not there, not because necessarily they're not a believer, but because they have not maybe been discipled very well, or they don't see large manifestations of this righteousness in their life, so this can concern them. But the true believer of Jesus Christ will get after it then. They'll begin to put away sin in their life. They'll begin to walk in righteousness. In their own power? No. In the power of the Spirit that abides inside of them. And as they see hopes of righteousness in their life, even small ones, beloved, as they see them, even in the midst of our messy sin, okay, even in the midst of all that junk, as they see those lights of light of righteousness pour in, here and there and more and more, and incrementally and progressively, confidence builds in them. And they begin to know that they know that they know that they are a child of God. So that when the righteous one returns, they'll have no fear. They won't flee away in shame. Not because they think that they stand with Christ and like, look at me, look at No, because they'll know He's coming for me. He's coming for me. I know I'm a child of God. I know that because that reality has manifested itself in my life. Do you understand what I'm saying? For clarity, I just said it before, practicing righteousness does not make you a child of God, okay? That's not what John says. I can't practice righteousness and become a child of God. The child of God is the one who ultimately practices righteousness. Why? Because our righteous God, our righteous God abides in us through His Holy Spirit that He has given to us. We're going to get to that in chapter 3, verse 9, right? He says, God's seed, the Spirit of God Himself abides in the Christian. You think God's cool with sin? He's not. And many of us don't understand how uncool He is with sin and how much He hates it because we don't read the Old Testament. But as you read the Old Testament, it becomes very clear, crystal clear, what God thinks about sin. He hates it. Now, if He loves you, do you think He's going to tolerate something He hates in your life? Do you think that's going to happen? I don't think so, beloved. And so He begins to work in and through you. Slowly, but certainly. And you cooperate with Him. That's your part. Abide! 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 And your spirit, the spirit inside of you says, yes, abide! And as you abide, you begin to be changed, transformed. And as you do, and as that righteousness is manifested in your life, sin's still going on, guys. It's still going on. But as that righteousness comes pouring out of that mess, your confidence builds. You know you are a child of God, and all that does is motivate you to want to live for Him more certainly, more carefully, more radically. Because you know you're a child of God. You know where you're going. I might as well just get with it right now. I might as well start living like I should live right now. You see that? We find our power and success to do that, beloved, to live righteously. You think we find it in ourselves? Please. Left to ourselves, we'd be a complete disaster. But God has given us His Holy Spirit, and through that Holy Spirit, we find the power to live for Him. Being born of Him, becoming children of God, is the reason that Christians can and do manifest righteousness in their lives. And it is the evidence of this righteousness that assures them of their special relationship with God as His children. By the way, as I said before, it also I would add to this, it would also have helped John's readers then identify those false Christians who said, you can live however you want, but follow us. We're Christians. No, you're not. That's what John's readers could say. No, you're not. The Apostle John says a child of God cannot keep on sinning. He cannot just he He cares. It doesn't mean he won't sin, but he cannot pursue a life of sin. He can't, for God's very seed abides in him. That's what the Apostle John is saying. True Christians will reflect the character of God. Tomorrow? Well, I don't know. A week, a year? Eventually over time, to some degree. To say otherwise. Let's go to the other side of this. Should I say the opposite? Yeah, you can be a true Christian and you'll never reflect the character of God. Beloved, that's just not true. That's not true. That's a lie. To be a child of God means you will look like Him. You, like father, like son. The apple doesn't fall that that far from the tree, a chip off the old block. It is the reality of being a Christian. You have been given a new nature. You have been born of Him as a Christian. And you know what? He's righteous. And that righteousness ekes out through your life. So we're way over time, but let me just say this real quick. Maybe you're here, and I'm glad you're here, and yet you don't have any type of this reality in your life and yet you think you're a Christian. Okay, you, you look back over your life and you don't really see any change. I'm none. Zero. Zip. And in fact, the opposite is true. You're pursuing a, a pattern of sin and rebellion because you live for yourself. You don't really care about God. Not the God of the Bible. You don't really care about Jesus Christ. You don't concern yourself with what He says for you. You live your way. You live your moral life the way you've defined it. That would be... It's not fine, but if you did that and said you weren't a Christian, I could respect that on that level because I would at least say you're telling the truth. But for you to stand over here on the side of Christian and yet manifest all that nonsense and still claim to be a child of God, you're wrong. You're not. Your confidence is false. So I would exhort you, I would plead, I would beg that you would come to your senses and that you would give your life to Jesus Christ really for the first time because you never have and I can say you never have because the word of God says it that way not because I know something about you or I can look inside your heart, I have no idea what's going on but you looking inside of your own heart man, just looking at your own life as you lay it out You said you were a Christian 20 years ago. There's been no change. And really, you just live for yourself still? Sinning away? Doesn't bother you? And you claim to be a child of God? No, beloved. You need to become a child of God. Become a child of God, and then, and only then, will the power of God begin to work in your life. And all that garbage and all that sin that's ruining you and destroying you, and separate you from the Father and will leave you in a position on that day in shame, shrinking away from the Righteous One, running and hiding from Him. All of that stuff, you come to God, you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, gone. It's all gone. God will enter into your life, begin to change your life, begin to move you from sinner to saint Begin to bring about the reality of righteousness in your life. And you will have a confidence and a joy that you never had before as you await the return of the righteous one, knowing that you are born of God, you are a child of God, so that when He comes, you'll be like this. You'll be like this. Because you'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are His. You are His. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our time together. I thank You for Your Word, Father. And I know, I believe strongly, there are those in our midst right now who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, You sent Your Son out of Your great love, which John gets into in chapter 3. Oh, a love, see what kind of love is this? That we should be called children of God. This is amazing! This is an altogether, out-of-this-world type of love that, that you would resolve the problem between sinners and yourself, a holy God, by sending your perfect, righteous Son to live that righteous life that we could never live and then to lay Himself down on the cross as our substitute, on our behalf, dying and suffering for our sins that we might be forgiven and declared right with You. And then You, as a gift, as a gracious and loving gift, pour Your Spirit into our lives, saving us and beginning to change us because ultimately Your goal for us is that we would look just like Your perfect, righteous Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that You would work in the hearts and the minds of those people here that have yet to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would see their way is a lousy way. It only can lead to ruin and destruction. It can only lead to a very bad day when He returns again and they stand before Him. And Father, they won't be standing. They'll be crawling away. Because they'll have no confidence that they know you. For for they've never manifested righteousness in their life. And the reason that hasn't happened is they were never born of you. And they were never born of you, Father, because they never trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They never gave themselves to Him. But decided to live their own life the, the way they wanted to. Father, by Your grace, Your power, Your love, work inside of them. And Father, for us as Christians, would You continue to work in our hearts and our lives. Father, may we get more serious about reading Your Word, believing Your Word, and trusting in the power of Your Spirit to manifest His righteousness. Not our own, we don't have any. To manifest His righteousness in our lives. Because by that, not only will we get more excited about being a Christian, because we are confident, our joy will build. We will know that we know that we know that we know Him. And that just feeds itself like a fantastic, wonderful monster. Yes, I know you, God. Look look what's happening. And you desire it more and more. But what happens when that happens, Father, this is what we know. When we begin to pursue righteousness, when it begins to be part of our life, the blessings that pour down on us. Oh, the blessings we forfeit. Oh, the blessings we forfeit, Father. Because we do not truly pursue this as we should. Father, help us. May we see this is the best for us. This is living the best life now. Pursuing you. Abiding in Jesus Christ. Obeying Him and trusting in the power of the Spirit to bring forth righteousness in our life. And being blessed by it and having our confidence built through it. That we are children of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.